Welcome to the Beyond the Books podcast, where we're talking with the experts solving the world's biggest problems. My name is Jonah Leinwand. And my name is Aryan Singh. We would like to welcome you back to our podcast. On today's episode, Wearable Biosensors, we are joined by Professor Jennifer Howcroft, who we are extremely excited to be speaking with today. Professor Howcroft is a lecturer and a highly motivated researcher in the Department of Systems Design Engineering at the University of Waterloo. Thank you so much for joining us today, Professor Howcroft. You're clearly very involved in engineering research and have tons of experience in the field. So could you tell us a little bit about yourself and your primary research topics? Sure, well, I think you did, Thank you. Both. Uh, I'll start with that saying thank you for inviting me to be part of your podcast. I think this is a really fun thing that you guys are doing. Um, and I'll maybe instead of sort of starting up by like the research topics that I've, the specific ones that I've honed in, I'll sort of start with um, the sort of guiding questions that sort of tell me whether it's something that I want to really get into and look into because I think starting more broad is sort of more interesting in my opinion. Um, so I'm going to just say a little bit that I don't really do wearable biosensors, but I use wearable sensors a little bit more because biosensors are typically when you're taking some sort of biological reagent, something like a blood sample or a breath sample or something like that and doing that sort of an assessment sort of thing. You like glucose monitoring or something if you were a diabetic, whereas with wearable sensors, so dropping the bio, um, that's where you're putting a sensor that could technically maybe be put onto anything, but measuring physical human-based parameters. So for example, a lot of what I use is inertial measurement units, IMUs, and those have accelerometers and gyroscopes on them, so measuring acceleration, angular orientation. You can put that on anything, but I put it on people to see how people move. Um, and so those I would call more wearable sensors and encompasses a lot wider range of sensors. And if you want, we can talk about all the wide variety because I use a subset of the wide number of sensors that are available. But when I'm really thinking about the type of research that gets me passionate, what I want, what I am doing now, what I want to continue doing in the future is really seeing how we can use as um, biomedical engineers, wearable sensors, but also other types of sensors to really provide a meaningful assessment of human health and performance in a way that's clinically meaningful. So I sometimes jump between age groups. I definitely jump between sort of the specific type of impairment that I'm trying to assess or that clinical goal. But it's really about how can we as engineers really equip clinicians and different healthcare professionals with the data that would be useful for them in doing their jobs even better. And I think one of the other areas that I'm really passionate about using sensors and wearable sensors for is seeing whether we can use them to give us a really like almost like an early warning, almost like that crystal ball type viewing into the future to see whether um, we can identify people who might have negative events happening in the future. Future. And if we can do that, if we can equip clinicians and healthcare professionals with that information and sort of give them a better view into that crystal ball of the future, then they're better able to sort of have timely interventions for those individuals and better utilize the limited resources that we have in our healthcare system and then really target that where it's of most value and hopefully prevent then those potential negative events that are on the future time horizon before they actually occur. 
So where I've sort of been focusing this, I'll talk about the two that I've been doing the most recently. One is really looking at fall risk assessment in older adults and so this is something that's a really big problem and a fall can be very consequential for older adults it can lead to them being hospitalized it can sort of be that transition point to maybe should you be living at home or by yourself or should you be living somewhere where there um, are other people in that environment so if you do fall again you can get that intervention um, and help if you need it in a quicker timely fashion um, and sometimes falls too like if they result in um, a hip fracture or something that can be very consequential for that individual and lead to sort of a marked decrease in their sort of quality of life. And one of the areas that myself and lots of other researchers have been exploring is whether we can actually measure how someone is walking using wearable sensors um, and see if we can detect some of those slight changes, instabilities, changes in regularity of walking to give us that indication, that early warning that this is someone who might experience a fall in the future. Um, and it sounds like maybe it might be relatively straightforward to do, but it's actually fairly complicated because it's not just the walking, um, it's also the environment they're choosing to walk in. Sometimes medications play a role. Are they walking in a well-lit room with, with level, clear floors? Um, and so sometimes just doing those wearable sensors can be very hard to tease out those important and relevant information. Um, and so there's other individuals as well who are sort of taking beyond sort of those wearable sensors that would measure the acceleration of the gyroscope data like I already talked about are seeing, can we add on that environmental data? Could you maybe put on a wearable that is capturing video information so you can get some of that relevant environmental information as well. So there's lots of really cool things going on there um, that I'm either doing directly or involved on the peripheries. So um, lots of super interesting stuff going there. And then our hope would be in that using wearable sensors, then medical professionals could use that in like your GP's office. So like your family doctor could have these small numbers of wearable sensors that we've decided are really relevant or important and use those either in a clinical setting or send them home with that person for a set period of time to gather that information and then use it to help them identify is this someone who would benefit from a home assessment is it someone who would benefit from exercise therapy um, or various other interventions to try to then prevent that fall that we suspect could be coming around the corner. And then the other sort of really interesting area, which is kind of taking what I do and stretching it a little bit, is instead of thinking about putting sensors on people, still thinking about how people move around in their environment, we drive a lot. And that's also an area with older adults where it's a really sensitive and important decision is when do you stop driving? And it's one that often we leave to our healthcare professionals to help with that decision when it comes to physical and cognitive impairments. But it's a really hard decision to make and they don't feel, oftentimes, um, they feel that they don't have sufficient information to make that decision with a high level of certainty. And it can obviously impair that relationship that they have with that patient as well. If they're saying, I really don't think you should drive anymore, it's a very uncomfortable conversation to have. So I've been working with this great group called Can Drive, who's been working on this problem for years and years. And we've been looking at second-by-second second driving data that's been collected over multiple years and seeing whether we can analyze changes in driving pattern. The exact same way I looked at walking data, can we see changes in walking patterns? to see if we can detect when that driving pattern is changing in a way that maybe indicates that they should stop driving soon. 
All right. I don't know if I went over time there. I don't know if that was quick or not, but um, I'm happy to keep chatting about it too if you want. Yeah, so when you mention wearable sensors, the first thought that comes to my mind, actually one of the thoughts that comes to my mind are uh, bracelets that you can wear that could potentially uh, detect falls and send signals to some type of machine to tell people that you've suffered from a fall. But one thing I've always been curious about is the accuracy of these types of devices. So could you talk a little bit about the accuracy of wearable sensors? Yeah, so that really depends on the application and what you're trying to do with it. So what you just mentioned, fall detection, can be done with a fairly high level of accuracy because um, what you're detecting is a fall event and there's typically some high accelerations associated with that. You're going from a standing position to a lying down position. So there's lots of really key clear indicators that you can get from that data to detect that fall event. Um, and so I don't know the exact numbers off the top of my head, but that one you can get pretty darn accurate. But the issue there is a fall has actually happened. And so while those systems can be really good in that it can then um, sometimes it starts like an algorithm up where it asks the person, have you experienced a fall? And then you get into sort of a back and forth with the technology. Do you want me to call a family member? Do you want me to call 911? If there's no response, then you would have set up, do you want it to automatically call a family member or automatically call 911? Because you don't really want things calling 911 without you saying that that's what you want it to do. Um, there's other issues involved with that. Um, but those systems can be developed. They're already marketed. There's things like that already available. So they have a fairly good level of reliability. What I'm trying to do with my research is not say, yeah, you definitely fell. It's saying, I think you might fall in the next six months or in the next year. And that's really hard to do. And so there's been a lot of work going on in this area. And we find we get really wide ranges in accuracy levels, anywhere from between like 60 and 80%, I would say, sort of a reasonable range. I'm probably a little bit off on those numbers, but a reasonable range of where that accuracy falls. And that's because it's a really challenging task to do to try to predict the future, basically, especially with something like falls where the specific walking pattern, which is what we're measuring with wearable sensors like um, pressure sensors or accelerometers or gyroscopes, um, we're just focusing on that biomechanics of the walking. And as I said, there's a whole host of other factors that can contribute to fall risk. If I'm walking off, off a path in the park on sort of a deer trail or something, much higher risk than if I'm on sidewalk and even the sidewalk is riskier, especially in the winter, than walking down the hallway on campus or in my house. So even though my walking pattern is the same, my personal risk changes in different environments. Similarly, medications can change those factors, lighting conditions. Um, there's all these different other factors that we cannot predict, that we can't really measure by just putting an accelerometer on you. So you mentioned earlier that you also do this portion of your research kind of focused on the, the driving sensors. And mm -hmm. I'm assuming that that type of research, you probably deal with people of all kinds of age groups, not exclusively seniors, like in that fall risk assessment. Oh, can you hear me? No, I lost you there for a second. Can oh, you? Oh, okay. Sure. I'll repeat the question. Yeah, no worries. <laughs> I, I was just saying, 
I think that in your other research where you're dealing with the driving sensors, you probably deal with a more wider range of age groups rather than exclusively seniors. So I was wondering what is kind of the biggest difference that you've noticed when researching the fall risk assessment specifically for that age group? So when I'm looking at the driving data, now I'm not looking at fall risk, it's more risk of um, the potentiality of that person maybe getting into an accident or the potentiality that their changes in health status are changing how they're driving. So the fact that maybe they're becoming physically less mobile, so less able to turn their necks would be really relevant for car driving. Um, and cognitive, we're thinking more dementia, um, seeing whether those changes in health status are changing how they're driving, potentially indicating that they're reaching a zone where they could have those driving patterns deteriorate such that they shouldn't be driving anymore. And so actually we do focus on the same age ranges for those. For the fall risk, we're thinking sort of starting around 60s, but maybe 65 plus is sort of where we're looking. And it's the same sort of sample that we're looking at with the driving study. What I would say um, when looking at the driving data set that I work with, what's very different about that one is the time point. So we have up to anywhere from two would be the shortest to like seven years of driving data, years. And that's every time they got in the car, every second we're capturing data. And so then you get to enter this whole interesting realm of big data analysis. And how do you process those large, exceptionally large data files. It's a terabyte of data or two. Um, so it's massive. And so that poses its own unique challenges and problems, sort of transitioning from the gate data where I got them to walk just a few feet, like the length of a hallway, um, to people who have driven forever, basically, like years and years of data. And so doing that processing and really making sure that that data is meaningful and how to look at that is very different when you're moving from sort of human gait analysis to driving patterns. So with that much data, do you ever find that, that you kind of are in a bit of a rut where you have just so much information that it might even be too much and, and you can feel overwhelmed at times? Does that ever happen to you in your research? Um, I think it happened at the beginning when I started tackling that problem as a postdoc um, because it was my first experience with a truly big data set. And I think just thinking through all the levels of automaticity that I would have to put into my algorithms was just a new mindset to get into that it really has to all be automated and those functions have to beautifully nest and sort of run seamlessly. Um, that was sort of the mindset that I had to shift into when moving from sort of smaller, more bite-sized data sets to these huge, massive data sets. Um, but I think one of the beautiful and exciting things about the CanDrive data set that really gets me excited as a researcher is that it is so huge that almost any question that I want to ask, I can, I can do that. I can ask that question as long as I can write the code and have the time to let it run because sometimes it runs for days. Um, I can get that answer because a lot of the time in research when we collect these sort of smaller data samples, you do the analysis and you end up getting some interesting results. But more often than not, what you get in addition to those answers is a whole bunch of new questions. And oftentimes that means you have to then plan your next study and the next sample of data that you want to collect so that you can answer those questions. I find with this big data set, 
at least half of those questions I could get the answer to without having to collect new data. There's definitely questions that we get that we can't answer, but there's a lot of them where we're just like, okay, well now we'll go answer that question. And then you just get to do it, which is kind of really exciting to have that quicker pace to being able to pose question and then immediately see if you can find the answer. You know, it's so cool to see how sensors, which a lot of the time can be really small, can be used to detect such significant things. And one thing I really want to know is that how exactly do these sensors work? Because I know you've worked with a lot of different types of sensors. So could you possibly talk about the coolest one you've worked with and how exactly it works? Because I know a lot of people are probably wondering that. So I'm not an expert in the actual like circuitry and stuff. Electrical engineering is not my strong point, but I can sort of walk you through some of the main wearable sensors that would be used in sort of biomedical engineering or clinical engineering, sort of like where I operate. Um, so I've already talked a lot about IMUs, which are inertial measurement units. And that's sort of a combo sensor that typically includes an accelerometer. So measuring acceleration, oftentimes triaxial, so measuring in the three directions, which we usually try to align with our three anatomical directions, which you guys should know. Uh, so, so vertical sort of up and down, going sort of medial lateral side to side, and then um, the sort of front to back direction uh, would be our three directions, trying to keep it at the high school level, hopefully. Uh, and then uh, you would also have that gyroscope, which is the angular information, again, triaxial. And then you would have a magnetometer in there, which can be useful for sort of that calibration piece because it acts kind of like a compass. So those are the ones I use quite a bit um, because if you think about our kinematics and how that's linked to kinetics, how, our, how we move in terms of our accelerations and velocity is linked to the forces, right? Um, having that inertial measurement unit that can measure those accelerations and attaching it to key body parts can give us a lot of information. Um, other ones that we can use are pressure sensors. So those you can just use a tiny little one that would maybe just go under the ball of your foot or something that is a full force plate or um, I've used ones that are insoles basically. You cut them off and put them in your shoes. And those are really pretty to look at when you have the data. If you're asking about pretty data, um, that one's really fun when you do a color map of high to low pressure because you can really see that um, center of pressure move from the heel to the toes as that person is walking. So those are the ones I play with a lot. We've also got EMG, um, so electromyography, that's looking at muscle activation patterns. That can be really interesting, useful, especially if you're trying to get a sense of what muscles are being used, which can often be important if you're thinking about what's the benefit of this for physical therapy, for example. Um, I actually did a little bit of work with that um, ages ago when I was looking at kids with cerebral palsy and active video games. Remember when those were the big thing? Um, we put EMG sensors on these kids to see, are they actually using their muscles enough while they're um, playing these games? So could they actually have therapeutic benefit? Um, there are sensors that you can wear that would capture respiration rate, that would capture the levels of oxygen in your blood. That would be a pulse oximeter. You've probably seen those. And if you watch shows like ER, Grey's Anatomy, um, what would be other ones? EEG, so that's more, um, and ECG would be good ones. EEG, we're sort of getting to the point where that's wearable. It's sort of still in the transition zone. So looking at brain activity. Um, ECG would be cardiac activity. Um, one that I think is really interesting, but it's super challenging to use properly, is a galvanic skin sensor. So those you typically wrap around your fingers. 
and they can actually measure sort of, they can be correlated with stress levels a little bit. Um, and that's one of, I think, the most interesting applications of wearable sensors that I've ever seen because I worked at um, Holland Bloorview Kids Rehabilitation Hospital for a while and they have a lot of locked in kids there. So kids who have very, have no means of sort of expressing their needs or very limited means of expressing their needs. And they actually looked into these galvanic skin sense receptors to see if they could get an indication of a patient's sort of level of stress or distress or how calm they were just from this one sensor that is sort of tied to loosely to stress levels. It's very noisy and very sensitive to movement artifacts. Um, but what was really interesting is that they tied that with something, I think they tied it with heart rate as well. They had more than that sensor. They had galvanic, they had heart rate, maybe they had respirations, but what they did is they tied those different sensor signals to music. So the heart rate was sort of the beat of the music, like how fast it was going. And I think the galvanic sensor put in the tone. So whether you were in a minor or a major tone, and it was just beautiful because then if the nurse was really getting to know that patient and if it was someone that they were used to dealing with, they would get a sense as to whether that music was sort of in a good happy place or a place where maybe they should be looking to whether that patient needs more painkillers or maybe just needs to shift position or could be hungry or just really cue them in this really interesting and different way that maybe that patient needs some attention. Um, so that one I always come back to, it's always sort of in the back of my mind because I think it was such an interesting and creative way to take those outputs and to take those sensor outputs and really convey them in a unique way. So this actually transitions perfectly into uh, this game we want to play. So in, okay. in replacement of our usual in the news segment, um, to anyone who didn't figure it out from your last answer, Professor Howcroft was me and Arian's professor last year. So our assignments were, were marked by her and her TAs. So we decided it'd be fun to hear how you kind of uh, go through that process, but with some other people's work. So we, we've found these uh, ideas for some really exciting sensors, and some of them are a little bit more bio-focused. Um, and we're just going to kind of throw them at you, and we want you to give them a, a grade. You can either give it a letter grade or a number grade, totally up to you. And then just a couple couple sentences explaining why you think it deserves that grade. Does that sound good? I will do my best. I'm a little <laughs> worried that I might unintentionally offend a colleague, but... <laughs> sure, don't worry. None of them are from the University of Waterloo. We, we made sure of that. So the, the first one is there is uh, testing being done on a paper-based sensor that could be inserted in a bandage to either measure uh, muscle activity or be placed over a wound and give live feeds of how that wound is healing. What do you mean by live feeds of how? Like measure certain characteristics, such as like blood pH or, or the presence of some sort of molecule. So I would think with the Band-Aid idea, the live feed of the wound properties is intriguing. That one I would give a promising grade to. Um, I think with a lot of these, I'm going to be like, well, I have so many questions. Um, but I think there's a lot of potential interest there, especially if maybe you have some sort of active ingredient on that bandage, um, how much of that active ingredient is still left. Um, if it's something about those wound properties that maybe would indicate when it's appropriate to take stitches out or when that um, bandage should be replaced, that seems 
really interesting and maybe they're onto something with that one. The one about measuring the muscle activity and the bandage part that wouldn't be over the wound, that one I'm a little bit more puzzled about in terms of what's the clinical value. And I find this is a question I often ask of my students. You may remember it from when I taught you guys uh, first year design. Um, and it comes up again when I sort of teach um, the 362 course that we were talking about where they get into their capstone projects is really asking, what's the actual purpose? What's the need that you're trying to address here? And so I would say measuring muscle activity around a wound site, not my area of specialty, but my immediate question is, what's the need that they're trying to address? And if they're doing it because it could potentially be interesting, then uh, maybe more like that C type realm because yeah, it's interesting, but is it gonna be useful and helpful? So if you could articulate to me why there's a need for that, then the grade would go up. Um, I can speculate on what the need would be for sort of measuring that wound site. So I'll give a little bit higher grade to that one because I can see a path towards addressing a need there. Um, and definitely think of some interesting ways that that one could be applied. All right, so the second one is honestly uh, one of the coolest ones in my opinion, of course. So uh, scientists have actually uh, developed temporary tattoos that can provide glucose level estimates for diabetic patients. So what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I think there's a lot of amazing things being done right now with these very um, small type sensors or what you're describing isn't really, is it's releasing the glucose, right? Or is it monitoring it? Uh, I believe this one is to monitor glucose. To monitor, yeah. So there's a lot of really interesting and fascinating stuff with these very small type um, sensors. And I think something like that is a really amazing and great idea because um, glucose monitoring can it often involves pricking your skin. So there's pain and discomfort involved. Obviously, we don't like breaking that skin barrier. It's there for a reason. So if you can do that in a more discreet, a more constant manner as well, um, and if it's more accurate as well, so the accuracy is always a question, is it gonna be as precise? But it sounds to me like you're getting the benefits of it being more discreet, it being continuous, and if it's accurate too, then fantastic. Um, because when you're just doing those intermittent measurements, then you have to be really careful about that dosing and then measuring it again to see if you're in sort of that appropriate range. Whereas if you're doing that continuous measurement, and even sometimes tying that then to a continuous delivery system, you can keep those levels in a tighter band, so then you're gonna get better outcomes for that patient too. So that one, I agree with you, and that one's great. <laughs> okay, and then the last one that we have is, is they're calling them pop-up sensors, where basically scientists have developed these kind of flat 2D sensors that after a certain period of time or based on some sort of trigger can then pop up and become a 3D shape. Okay, but why? I don't know. This is just something that researchers have decided might be useful. Okay. Um, so to me, that's a mechanism, not so much a sensor that you've described. And without knowing the application, I really can't give that a great assessment. Um, it sounds like an interesting mechanism that's been developed that likely has appropriate application areas or otherwise, why would they have done it? but I have no idea what sensor they're integrating. I have no idea where they're wanting to put it. So I would say not enough information given for me to really give that one a thorough assessment. Seems interesting, but um, I can't really give you more than that. Fair enough, fair enough. Um, so 
again, thank you very much for participating in that game. I know that <laughs> giving out grades maybe to, to people who aren't uh, you know, your students might be a little bit uncomfortable, but you did a great job, so thanks. Um, one question that we ask some of our guests, but I, I think in this case, I would really love to hear your answer is, as someone in biomedical engineering, which is a, a booming industry right now, we see a lot of people kind of going into that degree, into that field. What is one piece of advice that you wish you had known when you were at kind of the same point as most of our listeners in that like early university, just finished high school type of range? What is one piece of advice you could, you wish you could tell yourself? Hmm, that's a tricky one. I'll have to think about it for a second so I give you the right answer. Um, so I would think, I think for students like you who are in co-op, um, biomedical engineering, one of the things I like about it is how diverse it is. You could have every prof in the systems department come in and they're each going to tell you about vastly different research that they're doing. And it'll all still be biomedical engineering, but we are all in these very different areas. And what makes me happy and gets me super excited and passionate when I'm talking is very different than what gets Professor Gorbett really passionate or Professor Willett, because while there's some commonalities in what we do, there's a lot of differences too. And so one of the things um, that maybe this is advice I already intuited a little bit myself and took anyways, because it's what I did and I would just recommend that you guys do it, is I used my co-ops to really explore the variety that biomedical engineering has to offer. And so by the time I was done my master's, I kind of figured out early on I wanted to do research. It's something I've always really enjoyed. And so um, my earlier co-ops kind of told me that. But I actually experienced different types of biomedical engineering through my co-ops. So I did cell level research that was focused on aortic endothelial cells, which are the, the cells that lie in your heart. Um, and looked at how pressure profiles can change the signaling patterns of those heart cells, which was fascinating, but not what I do anymore at all. And I did um, a little bit of biocompatibility studies when I was doing my master's, which used animal models. And while I'm really glad I got to experience that and do a little bit of that sort of animal modeling type work, I also learned that I don't want to deal with animal models forever. It's not something that would really suit my personality. And I got to do people level research, um, more focused on that rehabilitation side of things. So I talked about Holland Blurby Kids Rehabilitation Hospital. And I did one of my last co-ops there and I did my master's there. And I loved it. I loved working with the kids. I loved interacting with people when I was collecting the data. I loved that I could clearly see where that benefit would be for them in terms of what we were trying to accomplish with our research. And it was like finding my happy place. And so I would say use your co-ops to not, like I know for some of you it's really important to make the money and be able to pay off your tuition and things, but use those co-ops as an opportunity to find your happy place. So just try out different things and see what matches with what gets you passionate. Um, so then someday you can be the guest on a podcast and talk with great enthusiasm about the things that you're doing because they're what you really enjoy to do. And I think biomedical engineering has so much areas where you can specialize that there's probably a chance for each of you guys to find your own sort of sweet spot. You know, that's great advice, Professor Howcroft. 
And just so our listeners know, you told us earlier on that you actually completed high school in Scotland, which I think is super cool. So you've clearly studied in a lot of places. So my question for you is, what was your favorite city that you studied in? Um, so I'll sort of explain why I did my <laughs> high school in Scotland a little bit too. So my dad um, worked in the oil industry. Uh, he recently retired. Um, so because of his job, we actually moved around a little bit. So I actually did an internship for just over three months um, in Melbourne at the Bionic Ear Institute. And it's just a lovely place to be. <laughs> it's the people are friendly and lovely, just like Canadians, but the weather is nicer. <laughs> and um, everyone just rides on their bikes on the weekend. Every little town has these lovely cafes. Like the, just the way they live their life is really um, special and Aussie. And so that was in terms of just quality of life and just enjoying where you're living. Um, yeah, Melbourne's got to take it. Um, and for most of my university, my actual studies, it was in Canada. So I did my undergrad at the University of Guelph. I did my master's at the University of Toronto, and I did my PhD at the University of Waterloo. Um, but I would say my favorite place, even though I was only there for a short little while, would probably be Melbourne. Um, but it was definitely fun to do my um, last two years of education in Scotland. And what part of what I always think is funny to sort of make students laugh sometimes is that my, um, my date to prom were a kilt to prom. So there was quite a few of our, um, our friends wore kilt, proper kilts to, to our prom, which is really fun. <laughs> That's, that's amazing. A great story for sure. Um, Professor Howcroft, I just want to say thank you very much for coming on our podcast. For everyone listening, my name is Jonah Linewan. And my name is Aryan Singh. And we'd like to thank you all for listening to our podcast. We hope you can all join us on our next episode. Thanks.